Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And now from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files with your host, David Axelrod. I've met a lot of politicians in my life, and my favorite politicians are mayors because they're the ones uh, for whom the rubber hits the road. They're the ones who deal with politics at its most elemental level. And there isn't a more dynamic mayor in this country than Kasim Reed of Atlanta, who took over a city that was hobbled by financial problems, uh, restored it to fiscal health, strengthened the economy of the city in partnership with the uh, corporate community there and has proven himself to be one of the great politicians in this country in the best sense of the word. He came by the Institute of Politics the other day, and we had a chance to sit down and talk about the politics of his city and the country. Kasim Reed, welcome. Uh, Thank you for having me. Glad to have you here. Glad to have you at the Institute of Politics. Glad to be back. So in uh, preparing for our conversation, I... uh, did a little um, uh, research on your on your name. Yes, and uh, I'm trying to square being the grandson of a uh, United Methodist minister Minister. with being named uh, Mohammed Kasim Reed. Yes, how'd that all come about? Um, I was born in 1969, and uh, my father um, candidly was considering converting uh, to Islam because uh, his heart was broken. My dad had been active in the civil rights movement in South Carolina as a young man uh, at Claflin uh, College, and uh, he was very angry when I was born. Uh, Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, and Dr. King had all been killed, and he had seen it. And so my other brothers are named Carlton Tracy and uh, <laughs> and Charles, as a, <laughs> which are pretty traditional names, but my brother's Middle name is Tracy Fitzgerald, which is just a mm. sign of his uh, affection for President John F. Kennedy. So it was, it was the moment, and uh, he was considering uh, becoming a Muslim. Uh, he did not, um, but uh, I, that's how I got the name Mohammed Kassim, despite the fact that I've been a Methodist all of my life, and it did uh, cause a bit of uh, <laughs> tension in my little parents family tension. Yeah, yeah, but you and- know. There was a, a lot of people were having family tension around that time of yes. of, of our of our history, tumultuous, yeah. tumultuous times, and you guys, uh, you you were uh, you were born in New Jersey and then moved here yeah, immediately. My, my my mother was up visiting my father who was working uh, uh, on a federal program at the time, and she missed him, came up uh, and then delivered me, drove, uh, and so that's how I was born in Plainfield and then went back home. You use someone with tremendous presence. That's something I've noticed for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, how much uh, did the church experience inform your 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 presentation, your approach to politics, and so on? You know what, David? I think it was essential to it because 
Um, I went to Ben Hill United Methodist Church and we had a section of the church that was called Children's Church. And so that was when all of the children, uh, 12 and down, um, would be called uh, to the to the pulpit and we had a sermon for them. And so uh, my pastor was a man named Cornelius Henderson. He had me do that sermon hmm. when I was about eight or nine years old. Uh, and it became um, something that folks that I enjoyed doing and and uh, folks in the church responded to. But, you know, it was that first feeling of uh, of I really like this and and. My mother, I mean, I don't think that there's anything that's more compelling than the pride of your mother and your father. And so for me, being in a family of four boys and being the youngest, uh, that was uh, that was a moment that I remember for the rest of my life. I remember my mom's face when I would get up uh, as a young boy and lead children's church. You've probably spent a fair number of Sundays speaking from pulpits since then, huh? I have, but, you know, back then... Um, we didn't have a choice. I mean, you know, <laughs> my mother had all four of us in church on Sunday, whether we wanted to or not. Um, my dad somehow uh, frequently got to avoid that. <laughs> um, but the four of us, um, we were in church no matter what. And so that formed me. And then we had a really terrific pastor. And Ben Hill was a very prom- was and is a very prominent church. So everyone used to come through. And so, that's where I met Ambassador Andrew Young, and that's when I decided I was going to be mayor. The church was so fundamental to the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned uh, Andrew Young, mm-hmm. who was an icon of the mm-hmm. civil rights movement along uh, with Dr. King. And alongside that, there is um, uh, in in Georgia and throughout the South this white evangelical uh, movement. So you have people going to church, uh, praying to the same God, uh, and yet this uh, this this conflict. As you, I know you you're someone you're the mayor of Atlanta, but you're pretty fluent in the politics of Georgia. Uh, how do you bridge these divides? Uh, I I think you work at it. I think that you take an approach where you know that all problems are not necessarily solvable. I mean, there's a big divide here. I mean, there's a there, there is a sense in many of our communities in America where we like a problem-solved, plant-the-flag approach. And I think in some instances that's just not the right approach. In some instances, you actually know that you've got a really tough problem, certainly around issues of race and class. But something does come about when you work at it. You might not be able to plant the flag and say problem-solved, but I do believe that there is something at working at trying to get along, working through hard issues. And I think in Atlanta and the South, that's really the reason that Atlanta is what it is today in the mind of America and economically. Birmingham was the was the economic engine of the Southeast um, before um, New York capital and, and national capital investment after seeing the way Atlanta had managed uh, its issues around race relations. You had Bull Connor and George Wallace in one state when Birmingham had a robust steel industry. Uh, And you had Mayor Hartsfield and you had Ivan Allen, who testified in favor of the Civil Rights Act and ended his career, and a governor named Carl Sanders and then a Mm -hmm. governor named Jimmy Carter. Mm -hmm. So the country was looking where it was going to 
play an investment role in the Southeast. And so that's, I think, the fact that we worked at it really hard. The chairman of uh, Coca-Cola, uh, when Dr. King won the Nobel Peace Prize, um, that was the first integrated dinner that we had. But that's because Robert Woodruff uh, and the CEO of Coca-Cola said, if you can't come to a dinner for Dr. King, you probably can't do business with Coca-Cola. So I can just cite examples after examples where um, in my in my city we have worked at it with all of the warts. And I think it's the reason that Atlanta has five Presidential Medal of Freedom winners, um, two of whom were, were awarded by President Obama, Dr. C.T. Vivian, Reverend Joseph Lowry, Ambassador Andrew Young, Congressman John Lewis, Hank Aaron. I think that there's, you know, there's something going on there. Milwaukee would claim Hank Aaron, but yeah, uh, that's the, uh, the 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 president, uh, this president, uh, Donald Trump, took a, as you know, right before the inauguration, a pretty hard shot at uh, John Lewis, but it really was at Atlanta, yeah. uh, uh, suggesting that. Uh, Rather than protesting the president's inauguration, he ought to be faced. He ought to deal. With, John Lewis ought to deal with the problems of Atlanta. And he implied uh, that there there were problems beyond <laughs> what is the reality. Yeah. Um, did how did you react when you saw that? Um, I defended a person who's a national hero, and I defended my city. I mean, there are a couple of things. One, I knew that. Um, uh, President Trump had tried to invest $350 million in Atlanta for a Trump Tower in 2007 and 2008 that went belly up. And so the, he said the city was terrific then uh, before the property was foreclosed on for the Trump development. And, and uh, since that time, crime was 30 points lower. The city had AA-plus credit rating. It had more cash reserves than it's had uh, in 40 years. Uh, it was the third largest concentration of Fortune 500 businesses. So there were all, there was all of this data that was overwhelming that speaks to the fact that the city of Atlanta it sits at the center of the ninth largest metro in America with a GDP that's bigger than 28 states. And I think that uh, I think Mr. Trump uh, uh, continues to take shots at cities uh, to encourage his base, which is non-city centric. So it really doesn't whether it's whether he's talking about Atlanta or bashing uh, Chicago, Chicago has coming in for some of that. Any city that he's bashing, I think, really is it's just uh, it's beyond dog whistle politics. It's a way to to say you know folks in cities are they, and I think that uh, I think it's a tactic, and so we responded uh, to that tactic. But um, you know. The country's economy is being driven by cities like our city, like cities like Chicago and Atlanta. So we addressed it really hard because, as you know, David, and as I've learned from you, there are some fights which have to be fought. And and leaders um, ignore fights that have to be fought at your peril. So you can't have a civil rights icon, a person who literally bled to make America great get a cheap shot and not have the community stand up and say that that's unacceptable. And I think to the extent that we play this turn the other cheek game, we're going to continue to see the kind of results that we saw at the presidential level where, where um, we want to govern and they want to win. We want to serve and they want to win. And so I'm not going to be one who sits on the sideline while their brutality and force uh, 
allows them to get control of the apparatus of government and do the awful things that we're seeing them do. You now he he took a, a great deal of criticism for uh, that particular tweet mm-hmm. about John Lewis. I'm sure mm-hmm. that his staff probably cringed uh, when they saw it, and it was kind of a a, a cloud over the yeah. the. Uh, and my res- I mean the response that that uh, that I issued uh, for John Lewis responding, I think was retweeted two three thousand times. So it, it took yeah. off. But my my question is this: Are you concerned? There, there's uh, there's this uptick in uh, in sort of rape, hate crimes and yeah. or or uh, apparent hate crimes yeah. uh, of all sorts uh, aimed at a uh, variety of minorities in the country. Yes. Uh, do you, are, do you do you ascribe that to the president? Do you think his rhetoric has intensified these kinds of incidents? I do. I think that uh, I think that our president has unleashed an energy um, that is uh, not healthy for the fabric of the country. And I think the big thing is for us to just stop being surprised. This person is who we think he is. He's not going to change. And good people have an obligation to do everything in our power um, to to respond uh, and to make sure that we provide protection for folks who are vulnerable. And uh, I see that energy occurring right now in the United States. And so we just have to be a part of it. The big thing is, is let's just not sulk right now. Let's, you know, I feel like we should wear this moment as awful as it is um, with great pride. I mean, this is one of those moments where if you ever read a book about uh, terrific leaders in our past and would like to believe that if you were there, you would have been with them. You got a shot to be with them because I believe that we're, we are uh, at as much risk right now today as we have been in the last 60 years in the life of America. So if you would have been with Dr. King, if you would have supported Roosevelt, if you would have tried to help Barack Obama get elected president in 08, but you were too young and didn't have a chance. My goodness, you got a chance right now. Everybody has some aspect of what is going wrong with America right now to step up um, and to engage. And as you say, there's been an awful lot of energy. I mean, one thing that's striking to me is there seems to be more energy uh, among Democrats, among progressive uh, voters and citizens today than there was on uh, November 7th, the day before the election. Yeah. how do you channel that in ways that are constructive? I think there are a number of things that we have to do. One, um, we have to uh, stop these uh, petty fights because we now know that there is a difference between Democrats and Republicans. And this horrible mush that was occurring during the campaign cycle that we really never were able to pull up out of where there were these um, false comparing, uh, comparing, comparing Democrats and Republicans. Um, we now just know that this is a radically different situation. And so um, this new energy has to be connected with people who also know how to run campaigns and win. And we have to work through this awful time 
And we have to stop being petty and rejecting one another and turn our attention to to President Trump. And, you know, the hard part of this is it's going to require work. There are Democrats who know how to gather information, create lists, run campaigns. And there are people with new energy who know how to get folks out and get folks mobilized. And there has to be some agreement to merge this so that you don't have 60,000 people attend a rally and get no data from it. No names, no email, no capability to structure it. And that's something that we're just going to have to work out. And it's going to be really hard. I I do want to wind my way back to your personal story. But before I do, you know, um, but there there seems to be, I mean, you just went through, you're a member of the Democratic National Committee. Mm -hmm. You just saw a leadership fight. And it was a fight between, even though the rhetoric seemed very similar, uh, there was this the sense of a Sanders faction, a kind of Clinton Obama uh, faction, uh, and the uh, some of it swirled around unhappiness about the way the campaign was managed last year by the DNC. Mm-hmm. But some of it was about the degree to which um, uh, Democrats should resist. Uh, I saw you quoted somewhere as saying that. You were prepared to fight, but if there were issues that might be a benefit to your city, that you were also prepared to 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 work with the administration. That's not necessarily the position of everyone in the Democratic Party. There's a group that just formed that said they're going to primary everyone or anyone who has any level of support or cooperation, whether it's for an appointee or a policy of the administration. Mm-hmm. So how do you sort that out? I sort it out because I believe that the future of politics is performance. You got to folks elect you to 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 win and deliver for them. Um, People that don't have a city to govern have a different responsibility than I do. And so um, I can be absolutely forceful and have one of the most aggressive, welcoming initiatives in America, which Atlanta happens to have acknowledged by President Obama's administration. Um, but when we had people that who were detained in our airport, I was there personally getting them cleared. So there is a difference between being the person who is actually govern, governing and those who are agitating for reform. And at the end of the day, the Democrat has to be a big party with big views. But we've also got to respect election results. <laughs> right. So. You have election. Somebody wins. We should respect that process and not keep an an eternal fight going on. If your guy wins, run it. (laughs) Run it how you want. But this deal that we're in right now where you lose and I have to act like you won Mm -hmm. doesn't work for me. And I'm not going to be fake. I believe that you have elections for a reason, including among Democrats. And just the other day, if Mr. Ellison would have won, I would have worked. You're a supporter of Tom Perez. I supported Tom Perez. Mm -hmm. But if Mr. Ellison had won, I would have worked my heart out for him because I believe that this situation where if your side doesn't prevail, that there is an active battle going on that lasts forever will ensure that Democrats don't make progress at all. And I think that that comes from respecting who. You know, who can beat you? I ran for office. You don't like the way that I run it? Beat me. I don't believe you can. 
Right. So I live my truth and then I do what we do. Put it up. You go get your people. I'm going to get my people and then we're going to tee it up and there's going to be an election day. But while I have it, I'm going to I got reelected with 84 percent support. I'm doing something right. What happened to the other 16 percent? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) But the point I'm making is, is that I think that this issue about losing and having the person who beat you act like the person that you beat. I just you wouldn't do that. We're going to take a short break uh, for a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back with Mayor Kasim Reed. Okay. You, uh, one of the things that struck, I've always been struck by how direct and uh, how pragmatic you are about your politics. So I wasn't surprised to learn that you were a pretty entrepreneurial kid. Yes. Uh, So, uh, uh, tell me about uh, Kasim's lawn care service. Well, we had I lived in a neighborhood with large yards and uh, I was a little, I was I was small and uh, but I could I could talk to folks. And so what would happen is we had big yards in the neighborhood and there were, you know, I had two or three older friends. There were a bunch of lawnmowers and so um, I would go and knock on people's doors and I would ask them could we cut their their yards? 14 for the front, 21 for the front and the back. I would go get friends of mine who were bigger and stronger, and I would sweep the driveway. And I had a, my dad uh, made me a card that said Kasim Reed's Lawn Care, and the slogan on the lawn care was Help the Kid. <laughs> that was my slogan. And so um, I had probably 10 or 12 yards. But, I mean, I was 11, 12, 13 years old. It was all the money in the world to me. I took the money from my lawn care, but then I learned about the America's Mart, the Atlanta Apparel Mart in downtown. All the kids in Atlanta used to work at Six Flags in the summer. I belonged to Ben Hill United Methodist Church. A lot of women wore jewelry. And back in those days, gold jewelry was the big thing. So I, real, I went to the Apparel Mart. I bought uh, in a lump sum of gold jewelry. I went to the church and I started selling that. And back then, you could sell gold jewelry at a two, three, four hundred percent markup. And then I did uh, pretty well. And how old that. were you when you were doing that? I was 15, 16. Mm-hmm. Then I got a job as an unloader at UPS on Fulton Industrial Boulevard. And so I could I got made $8 an hour working at UPS. And so I would go to work at UPS at 4 a.m. I could work 4 to 8 and still go to school. But I was making 32 bucks a day. So I was taking that money and buying gold jewelry with it and then selling it to folks. And so um, that ha- that's how, that's why when my dad and I fell out, because he wanted me to go to the University of Georgia. My father has wanted me to be in politics my whole life. And he said that uh, he wanted me to Ever go since to- the sermon, huh, when you were nine? Oh, even before that. <laughs> my dad used to write me letters. I mean, it was like, he write me letters about what he wanted my life to be. So... I decided to go to Howard. He yeah, was, why, well, I'm interested. Why, why did you decide to do that rather than the University of Georgia? Because uh, Ambassador Young had gone to Howard. And when I met Ambassador Young and decided that I wanted to be mayor, I read everything about him. And how old were you then? 13. So when I was 13, I met him. He put his hand on my head. He messed up my high-top fade. <laughs> and then I started reading about him because my mother was really impressed. And so um, what I did was um, I mirrored the behavior of people I admired. 
Amadrew Young had gone to Howard. Doug Wilder had gone to Howard. Vernon Jordan had gone to Howard. So I was going to Howard. Edward Brooke, the first uh, mm-hmm. black U.S. senator uh, since Reconstruction, Howard man. So every time I would look at I mean, I wanted to be mayor like people want to go to the NFL. So the same way people had baseball cards or basketball cards, I had pictures of politicians on my taped up on my wall the way that people would have posters. And the people when you had your I friends had, over, did they think that was a little strange? They did. They thought it was a little <laughs> strange, but I, I was still decent in sports. I was guilty of the same kind of thing, but yeah, uh, clearly by by the conference I'm walking <laughs> around here. Yes, but um, that's how it happened, and so my dad was very angry with me but because i had had a a very small jewelry business and lawn care business um i went to the airport alone and caught a flight to washington dc at howard university and uh, we didn't speak for a year because he said that you know i want you to be mayor one day i want you to be governor and you need to go to the university of georgia so that's how it happened and then one of the great moments in my life was I got invited to give the commencement speech uh, at the University of Georgia's law school. And so I called him. I said, Dad, I hope that <laughs> you finally made it. Huh? Yeah, I said, I hope that you believe that I made it. And then just to get a little more corny and I'll stop. Um, my wife uh, last uh, week was appointed to the Board of Regents for the state of Georgia by the governor. That's so great. I called again. I said, Dad. <laughs> Just enough. All right, so all's forgiven now, huh? Yeah, I think so. When you were at Howard, you were elected to uh, to become a uh, undergraduate trustee of the university, and you figured out a way to make some money for the university. Yeah, tw- I think it's fourteen million dollars today. So um, we there was a federal program. I, I, I interned for Congressman Joe Kennedy, and so while I was interning, they had this. HBC historically black college initiative that provided a one for one match because they were trying to get HBCUs to grow their endowments. And so I learned about the program. We had a president named Frank Jennifer, whom I loved and I wanted to, I said, you know, we can, we could really help students with, uh, with, with loans uh, who were having a tough time. And so I, I got persuaded the student body to do 15 bucks a month, which was matched dollar for dollar by the federal government. It's like 60 bucks a year. But when we had Hurricane Katrina, we used that fund to, to help a thousand kids go to school. You had debit cards with cash on it. And today um, that um, that program has contributed uh, more than 12 million to the endowment. You, uh, I read somewhere that you you counseled with Andrew Young on this, and he was a little yeah, skeptical about whether was. you could pull it off. He was. A lot of folks were skeptical, and uh, they said that you know, young people won't understand that. And I said, I think that, I think that they'll get it. You know, as long as we set up part of it so that it provides uh, emergency grants and loans for young people. Everybody knows uh, we have hard times sometimes. It'd be nice to be able to go and and get a grant or a loan. And so they have that part, but it's all within the endowment of the university because I'm a big believer in, in institutions. That's why I'm so glad that you have this institute at the University of Chicago. Yeah, well, uh, institutions are under assault today, and it's important to have them. Uh, you know, uh, I I wonder how many kids put up photos of political leaders on their mm-hmm. wall today because political leaders and all our institutions are being sullied all the time and yet 
you know, wh- where are we without in a democracy without functioning institutions? Yeah, but I, I mean, I don't believe that that's uh, accidental. I think that I think that uh, I think we're at a really dangerous time, and I think a lot of this uh, instability is intentional. And I think that it's up to good people. Uh, to stand up and live your truth and not be fake right now. And if my way is not the way, but I'm not, you know, I'm not going to change. I believe in institutions. I've been on the board of Howard University for more than a decade because of what it gave to me. And I think we extend our own lives by um, giving part of it to something that's going to outlast us. And so, you know, all of this stuff that's going on right now, I think that there has to be, um, a voice that uh, that maintains your own truth and you live it how you got there. And a lot of folks uh, have real different views right now. But, you know, I always believe that you ought to put up your record. It's great to talk this talk right now, but, you know, let's sit down and have a real conversation about what you've done. Well, that's the conversation that the president's going to have to have uh, down the line here mm-hmm. uh, because he's made some pretty significant mm-hmm promises to those people who elected him he has he has but you know he's got a very simple strategy um i believe that president trump thinks trump thinks that uh if he launches a trillion dollar initiative and pushes the trillion dollars in infrastructure out um that he's going to drop the jobs number number so low unemployment so low and i think the the bet that he's making is is that if he is the king of jobs, then nothing else he does matters. That's what I think his and, uh, strategy so it, is. So this is where the rubber hits the road. You're a mayor. Atlanta, like almost every other community, probably needs more infrastructure mm-hmm. investment. Do you support, would you, if under the right circumstance, because you can structure infrastructure uh, in a lot of different ways. You can structure it as tax credits and then you'll get only the infrastructure that would have been built anyway. Exactly. You, you just get P3s that where the project was so um, positive that it would have funded the transaction anyway. Um, what I'm in favor of really uh, is an infrastructure initiative um, that is aligned with the kind that President Obama developed, but they just don't want President Obama's name on it. I mean, you know, when I when I have talked in the very brief uh, conversations I've had, um, you know, the the seven hundred and eighty four billion dollars that President Obama's uh, administration pushed out that secured four million jobs early on, um, more than 30 percent of that went to tax cuts. But if you go back and pull the data, the 10 percent that was invested in transportation and infrastructure yielded 34 percent of the jobs that you could verify. And so I think that any infrastructure program has to be about jobs that you can verify. And so um, I think that uh, President Trump is going to pursue the path that gets you to the job verification initiative because he believes that that will help him survive all of the other horrible decisions that he's making around immigration, the decision that, that he made. Uh, his Justice Department made not to continue to take uh, part in the Supreme Court's uh, case involving the state of Texas, the decision that they have made to roll back protections of children regarding the use of uh, bathrooms 
um, that are appropriate uh, for for how you feel as a person. All of these things that are so inflammatory and so base driven, the selection of his Supreme Court justice. I think that he thinks that the silver bullet to that is to push a trillion dollars in real programming that candidly is going to be modeled after what President Obama did with the seven hundred and eighty four billion. But. Uh, in a manner where you don't have the lag. But it sounds like you would support that. Um, I, I I don't say that I will support anything that President Trump does until I see it in writing. Mm-hmm. But if it were if it were legitimate infrastructure of the sort you're talking about, then you would you a legitimate support. infrastructure initiative that will result in real jobs is something that I would. Would, would would work on in the city of Atlanta. It'll be interesting because there are a lot of cross pressures for him. He he announced mm-hmm. uh, on the day that we're recording this that he wants ten percent increase in defense spending. That's fifty four, I think, billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he has said he says he won't uh, touch Social Security and Medicare. Mm-hmm. So that leaves a relatively small pool uh, from which to uh, to to get the savings and. It suggests that there are going to be deep cuts in other things that are likely to affect people and communities across the country. But even with that, if you go for a big tax cut, a trillion dollars in infrastructure, that's a lot of deficit spending of the sort that Republicans have been opposed to for certainly throughout the Obama administration. And and that's why I opened my comments with I believe that he thinks that as long as you win the jobs piece— that he will be able to get away with everything else. So I believe that I think that they're going to have an initiative where they do a major tax amnesty. I think they believe that there's a trillion, a trillion and a half dollars worth of capital offshore. Mm-hmm. I think they think they can repatriate that. And I think out of that, they can They'll get a fund commitment. the infrastructure. I think that. And I think that um, that they're going to, to use the attempts that they're making around Obamacare to try to cut the corporate tax rate to 25 points. And so I think that that creates the environment to try to churn jobs because I believe in my gut that his gamble is, is that if everybody's working by the time reelection comes around, no matter what I have done, that's inhumane, inappropriate, taking people's health care away to give tax cut, get the corporate tax rate down to 25 percent. I think that he thinks that. uh think he thinks he'll do the same thing that he did on November 8th. Not a crazy theory, actually. I mean, you, you, you are a, that's why I'm you're so an sober. experienced politician. That's why I'm uh, sober. That's why I'm very sober about it, and that's why I'm talking to you about it. That's why I flew up here today, because I don't think it's crazy. But if nobody knows, knows it, if folks don't start developing this idea that he believes that he can blow a hole in the budget and do all of these things and just have an environment if you look at if you look at where they moved the year for execution on infrastructure, they said we're not going to start on it until 2018. At the exact same time, they're doing an analysis of why there was a lag in President Obama's 784 billion. So I think that they don't have to worry about what President Obama had to worry about, which was the 30 to 40 percent in tax cuts that were designed to get Republicans on board. Mm -hmm. They don't have to worry about keeping Republicans on board. Right. So if you don't have to worry about keeping Republicans on board and you do a real trillion. And I know as a mayor 
that they've already been directly engaged in finding out what is is I don't want to bring back the term shovel ready, but shovel ready. <laughs> and because cities have been through this drill, there's a different level of preparation as a result of working with a very city friendly administration with President Obama. And so that's why I'm talking to you about it. You're very uh, you're very close to the corporate community yes, in Atlanta. I am. What is the what is the temperature, the mood of uh, of the corporate community there relative to the president? Corporate community <clears throat> in Atlanta is reeling from President Trump's approach to to trade and the TPP, and there is a genuine fear around uh, his level of of unpredictability. I mean, you business know that, business craves predictability. Yeah, I mean you I mean you're a CEO and you can wake up and have your your stock plummet because a tweet because of a tweet and he read something about something your business is doing and in Atlanta we've got businesses like Delta and Coca-Cola and UPS and their their lifeblood is global trade. And uh, I was on a more on, on I was on a panel this morning with uh, with the president of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and um, and the CEOs that I talked to. I mean, I took a took an awful beating about it, but I think the president was absolutely right on TPP, and I think that we have turned over fifty percent of global GDP growth over the next forty years to the Chinese and given them our playbook. And I think that this anti-trade um, rhetoric that we're doing is absolutely wrong-minded. And the CEOs that I talk to regularly completely don't understand or don't recognize the Republican Party. On the other hand, Mayor, you know, in a certain way, the, the, the Trump faction of the Republican Party <coughs> was a rejection of those very people, the Chamber of Commerce, the corporate community, because uh, you have – large numbers of Americans who's, uh, who had good middle-class jobs. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the big question is uh, how much of it was trade, how much of it was globalization, how much of it is automation, uh, and is it realistic to think that those particular jobs are coming back? But nonetheless, there are a lot of folks, and plenty of them in Georgia, yeah. who felt left behind, and he— uh, and he galvanized them. And there was this very sharp anti-corporate edge to uh, his message. And that has an audience, and not just among Republicans. But <clears throat> I think we blew transition economics. I think we, meaning Democrats, have done an awful job of talking to folks so that they don't fear changing jobs seven times. They're excited about it. Nobody has a conversation about what it would feel like to be able to do something different. And I think that we've done an awful job at, as Democrats about being honest about the old industries and the fact that they're not coming back. But we don't talk with the kind of enthusiasm and passion that the other side does about wind and solar and its prospects. We, we talk about it like it's corny. It's not corny. It's dynamic and something that you should have passion about. And if we don't cool this planet by two degrees and try to figure out how to keep the temperatures from rising by a degree and a half, we're all done anyway. But we're not having these arguments in a dynamic passion, show up at any block on any corner, and let's talk all the way about it. We seed it. 
That's why when my staff completely went crazy when I supported the TPP, talked to me about how I was ending my career and all of the rest, well, there was a poll that came out last week that said millennials support global trade in excess of 50 points. There's the baby boomers. That, that global trade only well, got 35% approval And of. it's the baby so. boomers who are among those who lost yeah. jobs. I mean, I've had this – I've said this before, and people who listen to this podcast know it's a familiar yeah. uh, argument with me. But uh, it seems like, though, this is kind of a yesterday's argument, and today's is what are we going to do about robots, automation, yeah. and those things that are putting a lot more pressure on middle-class jobs I and think, wages. I agree with you. I think technology and automation is bigger, and I also think um, that – Democrats need to need to get very comfortable making transition economic commitments and just to say it in a simple way. It's me explaining to you what we can do financially to make sure that when we embrace an industry that ends your career, we're going to help you with real money and real training. And I believe that if we had talked about that for 12 months, that we could have flipped 80 to 100,000 votes. Let me be a little entrepreneurial for a second and take a, another break for a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. I understand. <laughs> so I just want to return to your, your, your own story uh, for a minute, because I know you went to law school after college, mm-hmm. and um, as much as your career path was leading toward politics and public Leadership. You went into entertainment law. Yeah, uh, and it's it seemed like a a fun choice, but kind of a strange choice given your your uh, trajectory. Yeah, no, it really wasn't. It was an easy choice because if you look at my class, um, my classmates were dominating the music business, certainly the black music business at the time. So, uh, Sean Combs was in my class, Derek Angeletti was in my class. Uh, You just look out at the people who were coming out of Howard at that time. They were really dominant in in the entertainment space. So the way it works is like this. You're a lawyer in a mainstream traditional firm, and you have a, a friend of yours who becomes highly successful. And they just want somebody to read their material and give them. They have attorneys. They're doing well, but they don't know and aren't comfortable if what they're being told is the truth. And I know that you've been invited in the same place. It's just, I just want you to come over and look at what I have and give me your ideas. And so what happened is I met a guy named Don Biederman who wrote the book on music publishing. And so he took an interest in me and started mentoring me. And he had been the general counsel of Warner Chapel Music Publishing. And so he started teaching me music law. And in, and in, and in music, the big deal was to make sure that you never had cross collateralization of your revenue stream. In other words, you had a lot of artists that would sign uh, their entertainment, their record rights away, but then they would sign their publishing rights away. And they didn't know it until much later in their career when they started looking at their balance sheets. And so I really started focusing on music publishing. I had some artists that uh, had uh, terrific success. And then the story kind of took off. And then it was lucrative. And and when you're at a large law firm, if you can do a contract that's a million dollars and the fee is 10%, 
It's a I mean, living. Billable, your billable rate. That's, that's yeah. better than Kasim's lawn care. Yeah. yeah. So so now it's completely changed. You, you just don't have that those kind of dollars uh, in music anymore. But, you know, I think two years ago, if you look uh, at when Puffy was getting his honorary degree from Howard, He's on the path to be, being a billionaire one day. I think one of the first names out of his mouth, out of his mouth that day was mine. You know, the uh, you mentioned that things have uh, have changed. This is one area where technology has completely scrambled yes. uh, the industry. No question. I you, mean, it's. I mean, the amount of money that was uh, in the, in the music industry in the '90s and in the early 2000s um, was just. I mean, it was just incredible and to look at the the agreements that lawyers negotiate today um i would i can't imagine working on those deals it makes you happy to be a politician yeah yeah. so you you went to the state uh legislature you managed uh shirley franklin's campaign for two of them Mm -hmm. and then uh and then you ran yourself yes in uh in in 2009 yes uh and what you confronted at the time was not a city in great shape. What was the condition of Atlanta when you arrived? We were going through the same thing that the country went went through. I mean, we were when I walked in the door, I think we had 7.4 million in reserves, which means that we were probably under 50 million. Anytime you got 7.4 million in cash and receivables outstanding, you're underwater. And uh, we were just in the worst of the worst of it, right along with uh, with President Obama and everybody else. And uh, every year when my CFO was bringing in, bring, bringing in our property tax digest, we were dropping 15, 10, and 5 in year 3, but always dropping. And then we had a pension that was absorbing 18% of all of the cash that was coming into the general fund, and we were certainly on a path to go bankrupt. And I had gotten elected. I'd only won by 714 votes, um, which was a point in my race. And um, I had gotten elected with the support of labor. And so if I didn't do something on pensions, um, the city was headed towards insolvency because at that time, David, we had um, our pension system was on an open amortization, which meant we had a pension that was interest only loan. So we were in a deal where we was paying a hundred, a hundred and twenty million, and we were not paying one penny towards the principal. At some time, you were gonna have to close the amortization, and so when you did that, it was gonna be a disaster. And so uh, I worked at it, galvanized the corporate community, worked with my friends in the labor uh, business who told me they were gonna leave me and go get a new candidate. Um. And at the end of the first year, we passed probably the most sweeping pension reform in the country. We did it fifteen zero, meaning uh, that uh, employees needed were, future we employees did a combination. had to uh, make sacrifices. Yeah, so there were employees who definitely wanted to keep their um, pension benefits in the past. Um, they paid more for their pension benefits, but the city also paid more. And then we created accounts for new employees that were. Um, more 401k-like. Um, so we protected the folks that had the traditional pensions, but that wasn't uh, the path forward uh, going going forward. And so I think our pension was 
you know, um, half funded now. We're headed towards 80 percent today. And I think uh, in the seven years I've been in office, we've gone from uh, right above junk junk status in terms of our credit rating. We're now double A plus from Standard and Poor's Moody's and Fitch. And we have among the best credit of the top 10 major cities in the country. This is a uh, this isn't a problem that's. Common only to everybody. Atlanta, like this, is a major problem around the country for state Pensions. and local governments. Crisis. Certainly, Chicago and Illinois. Illinois is probably the worst mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. in the country. Um, D- had, Dallas. I mean, you had uh, Mayor Rawlings is a wonderful mayor, but he was on the front page of the New York Times talking about a city that's as prosperous as Dallas having to declare bankruptcy. Yeah, what uh, it, it feels like, you know, I'm consider myself uh, a, a pro-labor person so and do a I. progressive person. Um, but it feels like generations of politicians made deals and general, generations of labor leaders made deals that didn't pencil out in the long term but were very yeah. convenient in the short term. So this, Yeah, so my, my opinion is we got to get a deal. I believe being pro-labor um, is uh, – a retired employee that gets a hundred cents of the dollar that you promised. And I believe anti-labor is having a woman that's 70 years old, get a phone call and be told that her pension benefits are going to be cut in half. She has nowhere to go. And the fact of the matter is, is if you had the wrong person in a job like mine, they would have used insolvency as a tool to cut benefits and in Georgia, if you don't meet your pension obligations, it's a very a simple formula. First, they take their your sales tax. And second, they take your charter. So it's not, I mean, you don't have a wide range of options. And so, you know, when I've been beat up uh, on a call to uh, anti-union, uh, I call up one of the seniors that hugs me and, and is getting 100 cents. I never tried to avoid the agreements mm-hmm. the steps that i took maintained all of the agreements and um that's that's what i think other mayors and other um, states are going to have to do it's a trillion dollar problem and we're going to have to deal with it because folks aren't getting seven eight nine percent returns out here right do you, uh let me talk to you about uh georgia uh, yes. as a uh uh, you know, every uh, every election, every presidential election, people, um, Democrats say, well, Georgia looks promising. Mm-hmm. Georgia could turn blue. Uh, the demographics are moving in that direction. And you hear it in some other states, Arizona mm-hmm. being principally the other one, mm-hmm. growing enthusiasm about Texas, though. That seems like a distant mm-hmm. uh, thing. What is the future of Georgia in terms of uh presidential politics and can you see georgia uh becoming a a a more a a blue state i think that it depends on the president on the uh or a purple state i I think think. that it depends on the candidate for president i mean i i've uh sat with uh, david pluff and folks and you and others back in the day and uh and made my case but tactical decisions had to be made I remember having a conversation with President Obama and Valerie and David and laying out the case for uh, Georgia. But in the universe of decisions to be made. Resource allocation. Yeah. And the result bore it out. 
But mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is, with almost no investment, Georgia has been the second highest performing state behind North Carolina. And my belief is that Georgia is becoming more Democratic leaning than North Carolina is. I think uh, North Carolina is actually experiencing retrenchment. And so when we have a candidate for president that wants to win Georgia and spends resources like they do in North Carolina and goes for it the way that President Obama did in 2008, I think we'll win it. I think organically in the November 8th elections, Georgia was coming towards Secretary Clinton with no resources on its own. That race by 11 polls had tightened to a point, a point and a half. But you know that there is a rhythm to campaigns where when people are busting their tails on their own, the cavalry has to come. Cavalry has never come in Georgia. And so what Georgia needs uh, is a slow, old-time Boston Celtics offense that walks the ball down the court and sets up a play and just believes that this can happen. And I think that because of what's happening in states like Iowa and in Ohio, that Georgia is going to get more attention because Iowa and Ohio and other states are less definite. And we just got to continue to make the case and not be crybabies. You got to get in a room and make your case that if you invest in North Carolina, not late, but from day one and plan to win Georgia, that you can flat out win it. And so I think it depends on who's running for president. But if I were running for president and I had a billion dollars to spend, um, I would allocate 25, 30 million. It's not going to be one on the cheap and it's not going to be one on a fluke. It's going to be it's going to be a state that you use um, as a dagger in the heart of the other team. You uh, you some people would suggest that you could set a really good example by running for governor yourself. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they'd have to persuade my wife, Sarah, and my and my daughter, who uh, who goes to a wonderful private school. And so <laughs> if they want to take that uh, take that argument on after eight years as mayor, welcome to it. But I, I don't think that that limits my role to be an advocate, be an advocate. And I, I'm not coy. I don't play any games about not wanting to be in politics. I'm going to be in politics, but I'm going to do so on my own terms. Mm-hmm. And I think that. Uh, you know, I've been at this eight years. Um, the fact that uh, Secretary Clinton didn't win, I think, gives me a moment to catch my breath. Running the city is tough, as you know. And so um, I'm not playing games. I have another campaign in me. So I'm not doing these. I hate politics. I'm walking. Around. I don't do any <laughs> of that. I let folks know because I love it. I love all of it. I love the I love the give and take of it all. And um that's what I think we need to do. And I think if we get the right person running for president, they will understand, given the fact that Ohio has become more conservative, that Iowa is tougher, and the challenges we're having in Michigan and Wisconsin, um, that I think I think my state's going to look better and better to them. I am, yeah, I, I am thrilled about um, Sally Yates' seeming embrace of becoming more and more involved in politics. I haven't had a personal conversation with her, but I think an individual of her kind and caliber right now. Former acting attorney general became yes. 
instantly yeah. famous uh, when she resigned. She was uh, in Atlanta with uh, our former, former Attorney General Eric Holder. But an individual like that on the gubernatorial ballot in 18. I She's think, a Georgian, yeah. a native Georgian. Yeah, through and through. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, I'm going to play. Well, let me say this. Yes. Mayor Kasim Reed, you've never been coy with me. No, I'm not. And I appreciate I, I admire You're you. always straightforward. I admire you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.